Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. You know, in light of just how beautiful that song was, I just want to pray. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for that great truth that we just heard so beautifully sung. I think of Habakkuk chapter 3 that says that even if the field does not yield a harvest, there's no fruit on the vine, yet I will praise you. Lord, we thank you. We know that you're sovereign. We know that you are working all things together for the good of those who believe in you and who are called according to your purpose. We thank you for this great truth that your promises are yes and amen in Christ and they are eternal. And we know they are not all necessarily realized here in this earth, but they will all someday be realized by your people. Lord, give us that eternal Christ-centered posture as we gather this morning, as we lean into your word. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the inspired word that comes from you through your servants that is without error and trustworthy in all of its ways. And as we study your word now, Lord, thank you. Humble us. We put ourselves underneath it. May it examine us. And may it make us more like Jesus. And may you use your word and as we preach it, as we pray it, as we sing it, may you use your word to draw any friends that are in this room not yet trusting in Jesus to faith in him. And Lord, before we leave this place, would you be glorified? Would all the churches in our city and in our state and our nation and around the world that love Jesus, would they be built up and encouraged? Thank you for the body of Christ, for the word of God, for the great truth of your grace to us in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 16. We embark our final chapter in Romans. I have thoroughly enjoyed this this study through Romans. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 of Romans chapter 16. If you were just deciding on a particular text to preach, this probably wouldn't be the text that you would choose. But it's in God's Word, and it's right after Romans 15, which we finished last Sunday, so this is where we are. And on the surface, we may think, oh, well, this isn't quite like Romans 8, you know, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no separation for those who are in Him. It's just a list, basically, of names where Paul is saying, greet this brother and this sister. But if we stare closely, I think we will see that there is gold in them, their hills, and so I want us to work through this quickly and, um, and, and, and settle on a couple truths that I, I hope will build us up in the Lord. Before I do that, let me mention something that uh, I want to bring to your attention that is quite important. We've mentioned it to you, you know, occasionally, pretty regularly in the past, but, but I think it mentions special, uh, or warrants special mentioning for me is that um, on every given Sunday, on any given Sunday at Crosspoint, we have the great privilege to minister to about 200 children elementary age and below that are not in this room. There's about 200 kids that are in that hallway behind us, um, sometimes uh, close to 250 children. 
And those children are ministered to by members of Crosspoint. Uh, it takes about 60 or 70 volunteers from the membership of Crosspoint to minister to those children week after week. And we are in a situation where we are very low on people volunteering to serve in children's ministry. It's always a, a difficult time, in particular this time of year. The, the summertime seems to impact us more than other times. We have a, a large military army population in the church, which we're very thankful for. But they tend to PCS and move on in the springtime. Uh, people are traveling over the summer. And so there's always a great stress and strain on our volunteer base for children's ministry. If you are a member of Crosspoint and you are not currently serving in children's ministry, let me, let me just pastorally plead with you to, to help us and serve in this area. What we're asking you to do is to serve one out of every five Sundays. So it's not like you would be in the children's ministry room every Sunday, obviously. But one out of every five Sundays, we would ask you to serve in one of the 11 rooms that minister to children uh, ages 5th grade and below, all the way to, to young infants. Uh, we have a children's ministry director, Christi Kristen Wise, who works her fingers to the bone, really getting with some uh, wonderful room directors that work tirelessly through the week to get those lessons ready and all of the things that are needed to teach. The kids are not just in there coloring color sheets and, you know, having goldfish snacks. They're learning gospel lessons. And we as a church are responsible for ministering to our children. You may say, oh, well, I don't, I'm not particularly gifted in, in uh, teaching children. Well, we don't necessarily need lead teachers. We just need people that will serve as, you know, uh, uh, cat herders <laughs> and, um, and helping to supervise the children. Um, and uh, we need men. Men, this is not something that we should just say, oh, the women will take care of that. That is an ungodly and sinfully chauvinistic attitude if you have it. Uh, we also need people who don't have children. If you're, if you're a young person that maybe doesn't have kids and you're thinking, oh, that's just not my stage of life, that'd be a wonderful place for you to serve the family of God. If you're a young man who's a member of Crosspoint and you're single, by the way, that's a great place to learn skills on how to care for children, which later on in your life will become very attractive to a young lady that you may be trying. <laughs> maybe you're an empty nester and you're, you're done with taking care of kids because you, you did that a lot in your previous church. Well, you're not at your previous church, you're at this church. And this is your family now, and we really need you. Here's the, here's the, um, here's the real strain, here's where it kind of really tugs at my heart pastorally, um, is that every Sunday we have many visitors that come to this church, and we have a cap of number of children that can be in each room just for the safety of the children. You know, you, you don't want, you know, 63-year-olds in a room with only two or three volunteers. That's a recipe for disaster. And so we have a certain number, <laughs> somebody, somebody's serving in the three-year-old room. We have a certain number of kids that can be in the room, and, and it's based on a lot of it has to do with the number of volunteers. So if we have a low number of volunteers that are serving on that particular Sunday, we have to turn, we have to close that room and turn away children. And, and, and I hate that sometimes what happens is a, a new couple will come and they'll be there for Sunday, and they're not able to um, have their children go into children's ministry just because we're low on volunteers. Our friends, I, I think, in, I think um, in the past, we've probably not done a good job of recruiting volunteers. And I put that solely on, on, on us as pastors. We need to do a better job of being more encouraging, more explanatory. I'm not scolding you at all. This church is so wonderful at helping and encouraging one another. So good at that. 
But this is an area where just pastorally I'm pleading with you uh, for the sake of the ministry of this church, for the sake of the good of the children, that if you're a member of Crosspoint uh, and you are not currently serving in children's ministry, I, I, I really, really plead with you to serve. We ask you to go through a one-time, one-hour volunteer training on Sunday morning before church. Um, we'll put out word on when that is. There's one coming up at the end of June. Check your bulletin and Facebook and your, your, your email that you get weekly. And we ask you to go through that training, and then we'll put you in a room that maybe is best suited for you. Um, but we really, really need you, and we only ask you to serve one out of five Sundays. So um, help us with that, and thank you for your patience in um, listening to me pastorally encourage us along those lines. All right, well, let's get into the text this morning, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter, you're like, oh no, Romans chapter 16, <laughs> verses 1 through 16. Some of you just went, lost your breath. In this text, in this text, kind of like the football coach who didn't think the drill went well, like, do it again. In this text, Paul is, is it's important for us to understand, as he's saying just greetings to people in the church, remember the foundation of what Paul is saying. None of this means anything that we're going to look at today unless we remember the gospel, the good news that Paul has laid out in this beautiful letter up to this point. And this good news is that there's a holy creator God that we have all offended, every one of us, from every culture and tribe and tongue, Jew, Gentile, every nation, every ethnic group, every person has sinned and rebelled against God. That's the clear witness of Scripture. None is righteous, no, not one. All are accountable, and our mouths will be shut before God, Romans chapter 3. But God, who is rich in mercy has provided a way back to himself through his son, Jesus, God in the flesh, who came and lived a life where all of humanity has disobeyed God's law, which was a perfect, perfect representation of his holiness. We have all disobeyed God's law. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully man, fully God, lays down his life on the cross as an obedient, perfect, sinless sacrifice to bear the punishment that the law requires for our law breaking. The Bible calls that propitiation. Jesus absorbs the punishment for the sins of his people. He satisfies it. He extinguishes it. He removes it. And then he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now calls all of us, all people, from all tribes and tongues, Jews and Gentiles, to trust not in themselves, but to repent and believe in Jesus. So the great message of Romans is that we are justified. It's a theological say of, 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 way of saying that we are made right with God. And we need to be made right because we've been separated from him by our sin and rebellion. We are justified. We're made right with God by grace alone. It's not anything that we do. But it's through faith alone, which is a gift that God gives us when he determines to save us in Christ alone and his perfect righteousness, death, life, death, and resurrection, so that we can live after he rescues us for the glory of God alone. That's the message of the gospel. It's the message of Romans. And now Paul is concluding this magnum opus, this beautiful letter, this theological mountain of Romans by greeting people in the church. 
and offering them warm, loving uh, salutations. And there's much for us to see in here. So let's, let's read in Romans chapter 1, Romans 16, verse 1. And we're going to stop along the way, and then, then I've got two things that I want us to settle on as we, as we conclude. Paul says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. This word servant, I think, is a, is a, it can also be translated maybe in some of your uh, translations as a deaconess. Diakonos, it's a Greek word meaning servant. It's the word deacon throughout the New Testament. He's commending this sister Phoebe, who is a deacon, a deaconess at the church, which was a church which was about eight miles outside of Corinth. And she was very likely carrying the letter. She was the letter carrier of, Roman, of the letter that Paul had written to the Roman church. So she is actually bringing the letter to the churches in Rome, the house churches, for it to be read. Verse 2, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. That word patron is really interesting. It very likely means that she was a wealthy benefactor, that she was somebody, because of her means and her social status, was a, a, a lady that helped to fund gospel ministry and help to fund much of Paul's efforts as well. And what's interesting is, is that she was a servant, a, a, a deaconess, which if we look at Acts chapter 6, when we see the beginning of the, of the deacon role, the servant role in the church, is a, is a role of servanthood. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that literally means table servants, waiters or waitresses in Acts chapter 6, and yet here she is a wealthy benefactor. So here's, this, here's what the gospel does to a person. It takes people and it makes them not privileged in the church because of some social position, but it takes this wealthy woman and makes her a servant of all peoples. That's what the gospel does. It breaks down cultural barriers and, and makes us all one in Christ Jesus, and we'll look at that more as we conclude. Verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila. This is likely the same couple. It's not likely. It is the same couple. It is called Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18 and other places. And this is just another form of Prisca, her name. Prisca being the wife and Aquila being the husband. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Listen to how they are described by Paul. Who risked their necks for my life. They were in Ephesus with Paul in Acts chapter 18, and Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and it caused a great riot because the blacksmiths who were making these little false idol statuettes and selling them in the markets of these false Greek and Roman gods were starting to convert to Christianity and burn down their idols that they were building, and it was upsetting the whole economic structure of Ephesus. And there was a riot because of it, and Paul almost got killed, and apparently, I think probably what's going on in verse 4 is he's referring to that time when Prisca and Aquila, this couple in Ephesus that was ministering with him and were fellow tent makers, maybe saved him out of that riot. They risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. This was a wealthy couple who pushed all of their chips in and used all of their resources for the glory of God. And they used their house and their finances for gospel ministry. They were a ministry couple who centered their lives around gospel ministry. Their home 
was a hub for gospel ministry. Praise God. We've got lots of Prisca and Aquilas in this church, and I just want to commend this kind of spirit of, of Prisca and Aquila, these people who just give what they have. They, put, they see it's a gift from God, and they give it for the ministry of God. There's this new book out uh, by a, a, a lady named Rosaria Butterfield who has a wonderful testimony. It's just kind of an aside. She was a, a lesbian uh, professor at the Syracuse University in upstate New York and came to faith in Jesus through the witness and basically the Christian hospitality of a, a pastor and his wife in the town of Syracuse as they dialogued with her. She has a wonderful book about her testimony called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which I commend to you highly. It's a wonderful book. But since then, Rosaria Butterfield has converted to Christ, married a pastor, lives in North Carolina, and now has, has written this book about Christian hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I haven't read it, but I've read several reviews on it. Robert just read it this past week and was texting me this week saying, man, this book is one of the best I've ever read. And I commend that book to you by Rosaria Butterfield about how we should open up our homes, how we should care for one another with, with just the, the gift, the New Testament grace of hospitality, which if you remember, when we looked at Romans chapter 12, which Paul commends in the church, is a Greek word that means quite literally, love for strangers or love for people not like you. And so we should, as Christians, uh, with, like Prisca and Aquila, be people that are hospitable. And I, I think we have some challenges to this in our culture. One of them is HGTV. And here, here you hear me harp on this a little bit, but I, I think this is true, is that one of the hindrances to Christian hospitality is how awesome everything looks on HGTV. And so we all want a house designed by Chip and Joanna Gaines, and very few of us do, and so we're reluctant to have people come over to our house because we don't have a nice-looking house, and then what's our, what's our functional God, lowercase g, in that our functional God is the opinion of other people, not the God of the Bible, which would say, open up all that you have for the encouragement of the saints, and so I, I think we need to get over this. Let's just admit, most of our houses are not like we want them to be, Okay? We have Cheeto ground into the carpet. There's chocolate chip cookies that are about a year old in the, behind the seat cushion. Look, our houses are not perfect, but it's not about our houses. And it's not about how our houses or our apartments or wherever we live compared to, uh, compared to other people. Let's not make it about ourselves. It's about opening up our homes and our lives with other people in the fellowship to encourage them. And Prisca and Aquila are a wonderful example of this. And then look at the end of verse 5. And the names get kind of difficult to pronounce here, but we'll, we'll do our best. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. <laughs> my man. Epi I mean, he's there in heaven somewhere. We're going to see him. He's going to be like, yeah, man, I was the first convert to Christ in Asia. We're going to be like, really? Yeah. Praise God. What a thing to be said about you. Verse 6, greet Mary. We don't know anything about Mary. She's not the Mary that's mentioned in the Gospels. All we know about her is that she is the one who has worked hard for you. What a thing to be said about Mary. Praise God. We're going to talk about this more in detail in a moment. But praise God in particular for women 
who work hard in the ministry of the church. This church is filled with women who work hard for the good of the building up of this church. Oh, this church is full of dozens of Marys. Give us dozens more Marys and give us not just Marys, but give us men who don't just relegate the hard work of gospel ministry and church life to women. Amen? Amen. Verse 7, let's keep going. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Let's pause here and just think a little bit about this word apostles. This couple, again, likely a husband and wife team, were fellow prisoners with Paul, and they're well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ, meaning they were very likely Christians before Paul became a Christian. I think we need to understand uh, what an apostle is in the Bible. The New Testament uses the word apostle in two primary ways. One way that the New Testament uses the word apostle, and what we may be thinking of most when we see this word or hear this word, is this office or role of apostle. And that was a specially selected, finite group of men that had a particular authority in the New Testament church. We'll talk about what made a person an apostle in just a second. And then the Bible also uses the word apostle, which literally just means messengers. The Bible also uses the word apostle in, the term, in a more general sense, not speaking about the office of a role of apostle, but more generally apostles or messengers in the book of Acts and in other places you'll see where certain people are called messengers of the church at Corinth or messengers of the church at so-and-so. And the word used there is apostles. That is distinct, that use of the word apostle is distinct from this word apostle that is used to speak about a particular group of men. And who were the apostles? The apostles were this group of 12 men that were Jesus' closest disciples. And there in the New Testament are some qualifications for this particular group of men that were specially commissioned by Jesus to establish the New Testament, to establish the New Testament church, and through whom the whole New Testament came through their hands. And these men were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And they were specially commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the world at that time. And it's through these men, these 12 disciples of Jesus, of course we know Judas falls off at the end, but then Matthias is chosen there in the, in the beginning of Acts, and then Paul becomes an apostle later on, and Jesus in Acts chapter 9 at Paul's conversion comes down and appears to Jesus, or appears to Paul, Jesus appears to Paul, so that Paul would meet this apostolic criteria that the other 12 held. And so these apostles were men who were one-time gifts to the church. Point that I'm making is that there are no longer these type of commissioned apostles in the church today. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 speaks about this office of apostle, I think, and it says that the church in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A foundation, just think with me just even logically, a foundation is something that you lay one time. You don't keep laying a foundation. 
And so what is the foundation of the, of course, Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. The foundation of the church then is the office of apostles and prophets through whom the word of God came and through their ministry, these specifically commissioned men as eyewitness resurrections, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, through them came the word of God and now the apostolic authority that these men had now rests in the word of God that came through their hands. In fact, every one of the books in the New Testament, the 27 books, the way that these books were collected by the early church and where they were deemed as part of God's holy scripture is whether or not they came through an apostle. So every one of these New Testament books is either written by an apostle or comes through the hand of the ministry associate of one of the apostles, thereby carrying the authority of that apostle. That's how the 27 books of the New Testament were chosen. Some of you are saying, well, Brad, this is um, quite technical, and I don't think this is very interesting. It, well, <laughs> you may think that. Someday you'll mature, and you'll come to a better understanding of the Bible. <laughs> but why is this so important? Because there are many people out there that just sort of call themselves apostles. There are no more apostles. Apostles, all of the apostles, capital A, that through whom the word of God came, are dead. And now we have the living and abiding word of God. And I think because of a misunderstanding oftentimes of the Bible, they just call themselves an apostle or prophet. There are no more of those. And sometimes people will claim a sort of apostolic authority, and you see this a lot in the prosperity gospel movement. You see this a lot in kind of the new uh, uh, signs and wonders movement where people are claiming a kind of apostolic authority. And what that unwittingly does, and sometimes wittingly, sometimes intentionally, puts them in a position where their word is as powerful as the Bible, and that is heresy. That's heresy. By the way, that's the same problem with the Catholic Church, which views the Pope as having, and the Church as having the same authority as the Word of God, and that is heretical. So that, that's why it's important. If you go to a church or you listen to some ministry and somebody's calling themselves an apostle, don't walk, run from them. Verse 8, greet Ampliatus. My beloved in the Lord. Ampliatus was a common slave name. And this list of names, I think there's 26, many of them are slave names. This is significant, friends, because the gospel breaks down cultural barriers between people. Phoebe, a patron, a benefactor, a rich woman, is mentioned in the same list as a slave, a common slave. Friends, there's no other place on earth where, where all humanity is one in such a way where, where all of these cultural designations fall off and we are one in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the beautiful fruit and the consequence of a church when the gospel is central. It's people are not, they're not reserved a seat because of their social position. James chapter 1, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 speaks about this terrible thing going on in the church where there's these rich people and they get a special place just because they're rich, friends. That is idolatry. It's wanting social laddering up more than it is the gospel. And we see this picture here where this man, Ampliatus, a common slave, gets greeted along with the wealthy patron, Phoebe. That's what the church does. It brings people together from every social structure, from every ethnic group, and it brings them together and it makes them all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 28 says, there is 
neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that there's no distinctions. He's speaking theologically there. Of course, there's a difference between men and women, which we'll talk about in a second. And of course, we love and we value all cultures. Come on, cultural distinctions are a wonderful gift from God. But ultimately, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet, verse 10, greet Apelles. I love what's said about Apelles who is approved in Christ. Maybe you have an NIV version that says, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Apelles was tried and true. There are people in this room who are like modern-day Apelleses. You've been through the ringer. You've been stretched every which way, and you're still trusting and faithful in Christ. And God has used what you've gone through to hold up as a picture to other weary pilgrims of what fidelity in Christ looks like. And didn't Dwayne touch on that a little bit when he was speaking about the need for endurance and gospel ministry in a faraway place like Serbia? Oh, the, praise God for, for families like the Baldwins. And, and we need to rally around the Copleys that it can be said of them in 30 or 40 years that they were like a Pellis whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test, tried and true. Verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. And his name's two sisters, two twins very likely, Tryphena and Tryphosa. It's my best shot at pronouncing their names. What, what beautiful names. Those workers in the Lord. They're not famous. They just get a little mention in verse 12 at the end of Romans. Tryphena and Tryphosa, those workers in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. There's that word again, those workers, those hard workers in the Lord. They're not people that just show up. They're people that roll up their sleeves, and they dig in, and they serve, and their head's on a swivel, and they look for other people to encourage, and they're the type of people who do whatever needs to be done, and they may be rich like Phoebe, or they may be poor like Ampliatus, but they are hard workers for the Lord. Praise God that this church is full of those type of people. Oh, that God would give us more. And maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, saying, I need to be like one of those people. Verse 13, I love this. This is an easier name to pronounce. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. That was a common Latin name. Chosen. Listen to what the Bible says about Rufus. Chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. The only other time Rufus is mentioned in the Bible is in Mark chapter 15, where his father, Simon of Cyrene, is ordered to carry the cross of Jesus there as he's approaching Golgotha. Imagine the impact that seeing that had on a young man or maybe a young boy, Rufus, to see his father carry Jesus' cross. And the Lord used the means, maybe, of the faithfulness of his father to be the thing by which he drew Rufus to himself. And now he's called chosen in the Lord and his mother. Praise God for moms who mom other people who aren't necessarily their biological children. Give us, give us a whole bunch of Rufus's mamas who will feed you, 
who will speak truth to you, who will be gracious to you, who will encourage you. When I was a cadet at West Point, uh, there was a, <laughs> and I didn't plan on saying this, but I'm just thinking of this dear sister. There was, a, there was a small little church plant right outside the gates of West Point in little Highland Falls, New York. And there was a young pastor there, and he was 100% Polish. His name is Randy Chiz. He now pastors a church up in Syracuse. And he was married to a woman named Marianne Chiz, who was 100% Italian. And they were in their mid-30s. And they had planted this church in Highland Falls, New York. And of course, as a young 18-year-old cadet, I thought they were so old and wise. They were in their mid-30s. <laughs> and I actually think there at that church is where the Lord called me into ministry and gave me this vision for planting a church. And Mary Ann Chiz, every Sunday, this little small little church plant about a mile outside the gates of the academy, she would, was, was about 150 people in this church. Probably 75 of them were cadets. And every Sunday, she would open up her home, and she would make a big pot of spaghetti or lasagna or whatever was her favorite dish. Italian. It was always Italian, and I always loved it, loved it. And she would open it up, and there was always a big pot, and whoever was there was welcome. And she was like Rufus's mom. And she would encourage you. She would rebuke you. She would mother hen you. She would nag you into godliness. And the Lord used Marianne Chiz in beautiful ways in my life and in the life of many young men and women who came to that church. Praise God for the mamas of Rufus. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with him. All these names in verses 14 and 15 were common among slaves or freed slaves. Think about that, how the gospel breaks down social barriers. And then verse 16, I think we need to explain this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now this is not an endorsement, young men, um, as a pickup line. I think this was a common Roman way of greeting one another in the church, a common way amongst first century Christians of greeting one another, whatever it looks like in our culture. That may not be how we do it here, but we are to greet one another warmly. That's part of being part of the family. And Paul is commending here this greeting, a family warmth that we linger, that we show up early, that we stay late, that we look for one another who we may greet. Praise God for deep conversations that happen throughout the week. But friends, spiritual gold can happen amongst the gathering of the saints on a Sunday when there's a warm greeting for people who have their heads on a swivel looking for brothers and sisters to hug and encourage and help along the way. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, we conclude with this. Two thoughts from this text. Two truths from Romans 16. 1 through 16. First is that women, and I think this just sort of stands out in this text, women are essential in gospel ministry. And you may say, well, of course, we know that. But this bears special mentioning because I think it's so prominent in the text. Almost half of the names that are mentioned here are, are names of women. 
And that would be very significant in a first century male, chauvinistic, dominated culture. Paul is commending these ordinary women like Mary, who are just hard workers, Tryphena and Tryphosa, the mother of Rufus, and upper class women like Phoebe, these women who serve the Lord. It goes without saying that women were essential in the New Testament church and in this church. And in in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, at the beginning of our text, we see Phoebe who held this role of deaconess. I think that that means that, that Phoebe held a particular role in the church of deaconess, a special role with special responsibilities, very likely because of her financial background to to be somebody that helps to oversee and fund the ministry of the New Testament church. But let's zoom out a little bit and think about kind of where we should be, what we should think, the balance that we should have as a church on, on women and their role in the church. There are two views, two theological views, and I want to make sure that you understand where we stand as a church and be encouraged by this and be helped by this. There are two views, and we're going to put them up on the screen, and I'll read them. The first view is the complementarian view of the role of, of women in the church. And that view holds that, that women and men are spiritually equal. Of course, we believe that from Genesis chapter 1. We're created, we're, we're, we're all equal, we're co-heirs in Christ. But men and women are spiritually equal and have distinct and complementary roles. In other words, different roles. Men and women are equal but different in their roles in the home and the church. And this position holds that the role of pastor and elder in the church are reserved for men only. only. And that would be the role, that would be the view of, of the leadership of this church. The second uh, dominant view, and, and really the only other view, is the egalitarian view. And this view holds that women and men, like the complementary view, complementarian view, are, are equal but that they have interchangeable roles in the home and the church. And as opposed to the complementarian view, this view holds that women can hold all the same roles in the church, in church leadership as men. We would disagree with this, so I want to kind of strike a balance here. I want, I want to commend, I think the text here is commending the role of women in ministry, but as we think about that and teach on that, I think it's appropriate and important for us to understand the full-orbed biblical doctrine of women and their role in the church. And we would hold to the complementarian view that says that women and their ministry is essential and vital in the life of the church with the exception, the only place that women should not serve in the church is in the role of pastor or elder. Why is that? Well, we get that primarily from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and let me read that. And in this text, Paul, I believe, when he's writing to this young pastor, Timothy is talking about the gathering of the church and what should happen in worship in the church. And right after these verses, he's going to talk about the qualifications for elder pastor, this role in the church. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, a couple things about that text. First is, is that I think what's in context here is this gathered worship of the church. And so he's saying that women, which he then explains right after this, as elders function, is their role is to teach and have authority over the church, to lead the church. He says that women should not exercise that authority. So I think a a clear 
uh, following or implied by this text is that women should not serve in the role that teaching and authority calls for, which is the role of elders. Rather, she's to remain quiet. This doesn't mean that a woman could never speak in church. Because we see in 1 Corinthians 11, which we won't take the time to read, where Paul commends women who pray in church and speak in church and encourage the church, but they should do so in a way signified in the first century by a head covering, in a way that shows their submissiveness to the leadership of the church. So he's not saying that women can't speak at all, but there's a type of speech that they should not participate in, and it is a speech that is reserved for elders and pastors, which is one office, which is the teaching of the word of God and the leading and shepherding of the church. Why does Paul say that a woman should not participate in this? Is it because the women in Ephesus, which is who the church where Timothy was pastoring, were not qualified or you know, we're, we're, we're not theologically trained, or is it because women are somehow less able or capable or weaker or something? No, it's not a cultural mandate. It's a creation mandate. Look at what he says. Why should a woman not teach or exercise authority as an elder in the church over a man, but remain quiet? Why? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So do you see he roots his logic for this order for this complementary nature between men and women, not in any cultural mandate, but in the mandate of creation before the fall. So the fact that men are supposed to lead in the church and in the home and in this role of elders is not a consequence of any sin or anything less than in women or any cultural norm, but it's, the, it's because of the order of creation that God has given men and women. So we believe that men, this role of, of pastor and elder is reserved for men. But, I, don't wanna, I wanna say this, this, is, this, this text is not speaking about women being elders and pastors. Rather, it's commending the servant, the deaconing work of women, which the church should be filled with. So that's the accent. We, we want to be faithful to Scripture in this area, so I, I offer you that teaching, which is admittedly outside of this text, but I think it's important for us to understand so that we understand the full or biblical doctrine of, of women in the church. But we want to cultivate and encourage the ministry of women in the church, which is essential. And the fact that God reserves the role of office, of the office of pastor and elder for, for men because of the way he has ordered men and women in creation does not diminish the role or value of women at all. But our, our culture is flying in the face of that. And women do not buy into the lie that says that if you can't do something that a man can do, that you are somehow less than. You're not a man, you're a woman. You're a co-heir. Don't be, I actually think unwittingly the culture that wants to rail against this, which I think is scriptural theology, somehow thinking that it subjugates women, I think their view that says women can serve in this way actually subjugates women because it takes women and it judges them by the standard of men and they're not men. You're a woman and God has called men and women to be co-equal heirs with equal value and dignity, but with different roles. So don't buy into the cultural lie that you need to be judged by a standard that God didn't create you to be. But here's the accent of the text. 
Praise God for Phoebe. Praise God for Mary. Praise God for Tryphena and Tryphosa. Praise God for Rufus's mama. Praise God for these women. And churches, listen, churches that believe like we do in what I think is a scriptural understanding of the role of women in the church where they can't serve as elders or pastors, again, those are, that's one role, can potentially and are prone to err on the side of an unhealthy application of that, a kind of scared, sinful chauvinism. That's not what the Bible calls for. The Bible wants to cultivate and elevate biblical femininity and see it flourish. And so we don't think that women need to stay quiet and you know, stand behind their, women should, should, are the lifeblood of the church. That's clear in this text. And so we want to cultivate women ministering to women, women ministering to children, women ministering to each other. And by the way, in informal ways, women teach men all the time. I learned from Marianne Chiz. I learned how to love people. I learned biblical insights from Marianne Chiz. And remember Priscilla and Aquila? Priscilla and Aquila, that couple that Paul mentions? Well, in Acts chapter 18, there was this young whippersnapper gospel preacher named Apollos who had so many gifts, and he was preaching, and the Lord was using his ministry. And in Acts chapter 18, it says that he was preaching, but some of the stuff that he was preaching was a little, ah, you know, that, that was about 75% good, but 25, nah. <laughs> and so Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, this woman with her husband, grabbed this young, gifted preacher, pulled him aside and said, hey, you know what? Points two and three were really good. I'm paraphrasing now. Points two and three were really good. But your final point there, no, nah, that's not quite what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. Yeah, you need to be a little bit better on this. And Priscilla, a woman, was one of the disciplers of this young man, Apollos, and they taught him better in the word and discipled him. Praise God for women that teach men informally in the church all the time. Let's cultivate that. But let's see this biblical pattern. Of men, and here's the problem. Here's why. Here, let me just say this. I feel myself getting off the rails, and I'm just going to say this one thing, and then I'm going to get back. I could feel it inside. I just feel it. And Jennifer usually starts looking kind of like, "Oh my gosh, where's he going?" So let me just say this. I think this is warranted, and let this just be an exhortation. Um, I think that one of the reasons this is such a problem in the church is not because women in and of themselves, are wanting to usurp the authority of men as if it starts there. I think the problem is the passivity of men, which gives rise to confusion in this area. I think we see that pattern all the way back in the garden at the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. Eve is deceived, and in her mind we think that Adam is like, you know, a hundred meters away, tackling a buffalo, being a man or something. And he, no, she, she was deceived and handed the fruit right to Adam, who was a passive husband, who wasn't protecting and leading like he should. So the problem is not women who don't understand their role primarily. It's men who are, who are, lay, who are not filling the biblical mandate to be Christ-centered, humble servant leaders, laying down their life for the women and the children in the church. So men, let's not be deadbeats. I don't think this church has many of them, but in, every, in any group this size, there's got to be a couple. Come on, if that's you, let the Holy Spirit kick you in the rear. 
You need a swift kick in the pants by the Spirit of God if this is you. Don't be a guy that has a good theology but a bad practice of that theology. And let's not be a church that somehow subjugates women, but a church that cultivates the ministry of women, that's full of Priscas, that's full of Phoebes. And finally, I end with this, and we're done, is that the second truth we see is that cultural barriers are dismantled in gospel ministry. Cultural barriers are dismantled by the gospel in the church. Man, you see, you see these slaves that are mentioned in the same, the same passage as these rich women who brought the letter of Romans to the church. This is what the gospel does. It makes what a people have in common, not their social status, not their neighborhood, not their language, not their ethnicity. Praise God for those things, and I think we should celebrate those things. But they should all be subordinate to what we have most in common, which is Christ. When the world sees a bunch of people who come from the same neighborhood or the same subculture together, it's not particularly in a church, it's not particularly impressed because you could take a group of people that have a bunch of stuff in common and they could be a church, but they would be together anyway even if there was no Christ in them. But when the world sees people from different neighborhoods, from different socioeconomic places, from different ethnicities, from different tribes and tongues, when it sees those people together and no other reason that they would be together than the glory of the gospel among them, it's a beautiful picture of the glory of God. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and the world takes notice. Listen, let me read this and then we'll be done. Ephesians chapter two. This is, this is the effect that the gospel has on the church. I forgot my glasses, so hold on. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Paul's speaking to the Gentiles who've been grafted into the gospel with the people that despise them, the Jews. And he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, in other words, called the unclean by the clean people, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by the hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So what is that text saying? In kind of plain English, is saying that we were enemies of God because we had broken his law and the ordinance, the glory of God in his commandment was against us. And Jesus came and satisfied the requirements of that law and removed the enmity, the, the wrath of God against us and he's reconciled us to God, but he didn't just reconcile us vertically between God. The vertical reconciliation between mankind and God bends out horizontally and reconciles man to one another because now they're one in Christ. 
And now we are one body. We're, we're one. We're, we're united together in Christ. We're a body. We're a family with Christ as our head. And he's made one new man, the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles and people from every tribe and tongue in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Our culture is marked probably more than any time in my life by racial hostility. There's lots of streams that are feeding into that. But I think behind it all is satanic work to divide the church. And when we are one in Christ, despite the different cultures that we may come from, it's a beautiful representation of this scripture. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're a family in Jesus. Slaves like Rufus and rich gals like Phoebe, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Praise God for the gospel that dismantles cultural barriers. Let's pray. Lord, as we respond to this text, as we, as we examine our lives, Lord, give us workers and give us, we have so many, give us more workers in the Lord. Lord, thank you for the stewardship that you've given this church in this town and in places around the world to be partners in the gospel with people like the Baldwins and the Copleys and the Kajubis in Uganda. Lord, thank you. Give us more workers in the Lord, more sleeves rolled up, more hands on the plow, more people all in like Prisca and Aquila. And Lord, give us a gospel that we treasure so dearly that it breaks down these temporary cultural barriers between us so that Christ alone may receive all the glory among us. I pray that you'd make this gospel so sweet, so beautiful, so irresistible, that any of my friends in this room today that came in unbelieving, that they would turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Jesus today. And for my friends that are believers in Jesus, I pray that this picture, this, this picture of the church that we see, even in this this greeting at the end of this letter warms our heart with affection for the body of Christ. Or do it, I pray, as we respond in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.